a half-truth masquerading as a complete truth becomes a complete untruth. I'll repeat that again. It's a quote by J.A. Packer. A half-truth masquerading as a complete truth becomes a complete untruth. This is the life of heresy, or teaching that goes against the core truths of Christianity and historic Christianity. Heresy is built on half-truths, where false teachers oftentimes dress up their false teaching in an attractive dress and parade it around town. And so to the inexperienced, as one has said, these errors appear even truer than truth itself. But in, t- in due time, in the face of the truth, heresy is shown to be what it is, a complete untruth. And the Church of Jesus Christ has had plenty of experience dealing with heresies and heretics, those who have taught uh, things that are in contradiction with uh, the true gospel, as many churches have sprung up from within and have sought to bring down the house from the inside. The book that we finish up today, which is Second John, describes such a situation. I invite you to turn there with me now in the book of Second John. If you're using one of those black Bibles there in front of you, you'll find that on page 1025, 1025. And John is addressing the situation where false teachers had risen up in their very own congregation and they had abandoned the truths of Jesus Christ. But they still claimed to Christ. And there, you can imagine there might be a lot of commotion in the church and it seems that finally you know, the church takes a stand and the false teachers left the church. That's what it's describing there in 1 John chapter 2. But, you know, of course, as false teachers often do, they want to bring other people with them. And so John the disciple, most likely writing in the late 90s AD, he pens 1 John and 2 John and most likely 3 John. Some people think that John is sending all three letters at the same time. And he's writing to the church there, calling them to stand firm in the truths of Jesus Christ. And while our focus is on verses 9 to 13, I'll go ahead and read the entire letter of 2 John. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in truth just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Christ Jesus in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I'd rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face, so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. From this passage this morning, we examine the heart of heresy, and then how the church can work to preserve health, 
So we look at the heart of heresy and how the church can preserve its health. Let's look first at the heart of heresy. This is point number one, the heart of heresy. You know, there are a number of reasons why people go on to develop false teaching. There are straight up carnal reasons. So imagine carnal, selfish people getting overlooked. Let's say they don't get the praise that they desire because maybe they're teaching within the church. Uh, you know, what do you do if you're carnal and you're not getting the praise you desire? Well, you go start your own thing. You then move on to do things differently. You run things differently. You teach different doctrine. And you recruit others and therefore people are led astray. So that's straight up carnal reasons. I think we understand that. Heresy also springs up from worldview issues. Worldview issues. What this looks like is us approaching scripture with preconceived notions of who we think God is and isn't. And what we think God would do or not do. So if you, if, you, know, you can't understand why God would do something, then you simply don't believe it. You, know, you say, surely the Bible uh, does not say what it says. That's, that's you know, a, a classic method that uh, a false teacher would employ. Or you might say, you know, surely the Bible no longer means what it once meant. And so there's a big gap, a big distance between our culture and the culture of the Bible, and therefore the Bible is basically irrelevant. So we can turn something that it says in the Bible into some sort of false teaching. A modern example uh, is how people go about understanding that God is love. God is love. And perhaps in people's effort to guard the character of God as He is love, as they understand it, they write off everything that doesn't seem so lovely. So God becomes a God of their own understanding, a God of our own understanding. So if you have ever been asked by a skeptic, or if you yourself have asked the question, why would God of love judge? Then you know what I mean. The question itself assumes that a loving God cannot and should not judge. But according to the Bible, clearly God is love, that's what it says, but he is also holy which means that his love is also backed by his 100% holiness. So then the question should be, what does a God who is all holy, what does his love look like? What does loving judgment look like where all of his attributes work together to carry about, to fulfill his will? When it comes to John's letter, he addresses a situation where the false teachers had redefined God because of their worldview. They are the ones who approach Scripture and they say, oh, surely something doesn't really fit here because it doesn't make sense. These false teachers, or what eventually became known as Gnosticism or Gnostics, they thought that God the Son did not really come in the flesh, but that Jesus only seemed to be human. So, right, they get an emphasis, right? They get that God, that Jesus Christ is divine. But what they de-emphasize is Jesus' human nature. Look there, 2 John verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. So in their worldview, they could not fathom the great and heavenly and holy things doing the stuff that bad, sinful human beings do. Like blowing their noses and other bodily functions. Seriously, they, they can't fathom that the great stuff up there, the spiritual, would do the stuff of this earth. And so their conclusion, Christ really didn't become man. 
And they would go on to uh, say that, uh, no, he certainly did not do these bodily functions in the way that us humans do. He did it in a different way. Uh, but that is to reject his human nature. Well, heresy not only springs up from carnal reasons and worldview reasons, but it also springs up from an evangelistic desire. Heresy springs up from an evangelistic desire. So if I approach the scripture with my own worldview, and I say, ooh, that doesn't really fit with what I think, surely then when I look out and say, I want people to love Jesus, then they think, well, it's not going to fit their worldview. And so let's change it. Because we want people to really believe it, or their so-called Jesus. Now some of you guys are probably thinking, how could they mess with the Incarnation? It is so clear. So John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And then verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then he just flipped to the pages of the Gospels. You see that Jesus is really a human. He was born, He ate, He cried, He died. He was also raised from the dead. But anyways, his human nature is so clear. So we think, how could they do that, these false teachers? But you know, Christian, we probably understand the appeal and the draw to rewrite the gospel more than we realize. Just think back to the last time you were embarrassed to talk about the difficult parts of the gospel. You understand the draw of the heretic. In your effort to see people know Jesus, you then make the gospel less offensive. Maybe you talk about salvation, but salvation not from your own sins and your own rebellion against God, the judge and creator, but salvation from all the bad in the world. Who doesn't want to be saved from all the bad in the world? Maybe you talk about forgiveness, but not the forgiveness we need to get right with God, our greatest need, be reconciled to Him, but God's forgiveness that makes you free from guilt and shame from all the bad that you have done. Who wants to be loaded down with guilt and shame? Maybe you talk about becoming a Christian, just not by turning from your sins and trusting in Jesus, but instead you say, you too can join Jesus to carry out His mission of healing the world. Who doesn't want to join a mission like that? Like that? Well, the tricky thing is, everything I've just said, to some degree, is true. But it is not the whole truth, or even the main truths of the gospel. So the problem is, not, is both in how things are said, and in what is not being said. That's the problem right there. Uh, both in how things are said and what is not being said. So that gospel, and I literally just took these things from a website here, uh, an ev- major evangelical campus ministry, that's, this is the gospel that they're holding, holding out, join Jesus' mission to heal the, heal the world. You know, never mind Jesus' death on the cross that paid for sins and Jesus being our substitute. Never mind the greatest thing we need, which is to be reconciled to God. Forget God's judgment. All of that stuff is being what is left out to make, it seems, the gospel more easier to swallow. You know, whether heresy springs from carnal reasons or worldview cultural reasons or because of good intentions, what is common in the heart of 
heresy is a desire to innovate. A desire to innovate. So we looked at where heresy comes from, now we're looking at this desire to innovate, which undergirds all of these particular things. This is what's going on with these false teachers in 2 John. Look there at verse 9. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So you, you see this language, this going on ahead. The false teachers right there are the ones who are running farther than they have been instructed to. In 1 John 2.19 we know once again that these false teachers are leaving, they're departing the church. And there is a great cost for their actions. Those who run ahead, as one has said, leave Christ behind. This is actually a great summary of sin in general. Running ahead of God, choosing to follow our own will, and departing from God and what He has said and called us to do. And so if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a Christian, running ahead of God has always gotten man into trouble. You can look back to Adam and Eve, right? They are running ahead of God and in fact, therefore, choosing to go against God. They place their wills ahead of God and so they leave God behind. The Bible says that all people, in fact, have done this and we have earned for ourselves what anyone would deserve if they set themselves up as a false king and against the true king. They earn for themselves judgment and even eternal punishment in hell. Thinking back to where heresy springs from and how false teachers run ahead, those who reject Christ because of carnal reasons, well, they put their own carnal desires before God's good desires. So they make God's truth their own slave, and they might say, you know, I use it, I even twist it, insofar as it gets me what I want. Those who change the message of the gospel because of worldview cultural issues, they put their own understanding before God's understanding and so create a God after their own image. Surely God would not do that, they say. What do I think, then, a loving God would do? And so they go about rewriting the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then for those who change the gospel message in effort to see more people one to their so-called gospel, they put their own definition of love ahead and before of God's definition of love. Even though Christ calls people in love to turn from their sins and to believe on Him, He clearly lets them know that they are rebels against the true King, the false teacher accommodates what God does not. And they insist to people, no, really, God doesn't mind it if you do that. So what are we to make of these things? Still under point number one. What are we to make of these things? Innovation is great. Sometimes. Fantastic. Sometimes. I want you all to innovate on some things. Like, for example how you can get the gospel of Jesus Christ to your communities, right? Go on and innovate. That's a wonderful thing. And I think here in the congregation, there are many examples of what it looks like to innovate in a good way, getting the gospel to others. So David Reed, for example, uh, you know, he decided on Christmas Day to show up and turn up to a gas station to do a gas station attendant some good. Gave him a little gift, and he gave him the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? That is very innovative. Most people, we turn up to the gas station and think, yeah, you guys come and serve me. David's saying, look, on Christmas Day, these, probably, these people probably don't want to be there, so let me go ahead and serve them. That's innovative. He's creating opportunities. He's looking for opportunities to love, and he's carrying out God's good desire for us all. 
But some things are just not meant to be approached with a spirit of innovation that seeks to change something. And so in some things, being innovative will do you in. What if you went to, for example, reinvent your parents' identity and authority? Just one day, insist that they are your slaves and not your parents, and just strut into their room with a basket full of laundry, just dump it out and say, 2 p.m., extra fabric softener. Now, how do you think your parents, those who are in authority over you, are going to react to that? Or, get this one, this one I think is even more offensive, you insist that they are your tenants. So let's say, particularly you guys who live in your parents' houses, just, just go ahead and draw up a lease agreement all on your own. <laughs> You know, with clauses and conditions, and tell them that they got to start paying you rent, and even include clauses for eviction, and point it out to them. Failure to pay will lead you to get kicked out of my house. Right, is that going to do you in? Or, let's say, uh, you people who are working, try and be innovative with your employer's policies and procedures. Walk into your boss's office and insist that you are taking 50 days paid vacation instead of the 10 that you agreed upon. And just say, look, I'm being innovative. I'm reading the law in new ways. I'm cutting edge. I am postmodern. This will not work out for you. Innovation is not good when what we are trying to innovate has already been revealed by God and where he has already drawn his boundary for us. Friends, if we have been created by a loving God to live underneath his good law, then that means we are not in a place to reinvent God and to insist that God is something he is not. Or to say that he does not own something when he actually does. Or that he has not said something when he actually has. Just as reinventing our parents' identity or our employer's policies is an offense to them, so it is to God to redefine him, to reinvent who he is, and to think creatively about his policies and procedures or his law. Non-Christian, the wonderful thing, though, comes exactly at the same point that the, these false teachers reject it where they seek to reinvent and they think this is good news, they actually make that, their news bad news. And they're changing the good news. And so in Jesus Christ come in the flesh in order to save those who sin against Him, that's what God holds out as good. In Christ, God reaches out to man. In Christ, man is saved to God. And Jesus Christ is our mediator. This is God's salvation plan. The reason why he sent Jesus Christ to take on flesh, to be our substitute on the cross, bearing the very wrath that we deserve, right? Where we had set up our own rival king and deserved punishment. God, nevertheless, reaches out his hand in love, mercy, and grace and offers rebels a way out. We see no greater love than in the Father giving his Son to become sin for us. Why would we want to change that? As God sends His Son to be our mediator. God reaches out to man. Man is saved to God. And so we have a mediator in the God-man, Jesus Christ. I don't want to innovate the incarnation. 
nor do I want to innovate the fact that Christ is king of the universe. I mean, just think logically, right? What are we going to change it to? What are our options, right? Being kings of our own universe? Man got ourselves into the problem we are in. We can't deliver ourselves, but Christ the king can. And then when it comes to the law of the kingdom, right? Who would, when the law of Christ is a law of love, who would want to change that law? And we can so appreciate the law of love, a law of self-sacrifice, a law that enforces Christ's reign of grace. Why would we want to change any of that? In fact, we would want to believe it. And this is what God does in Jesus Christ. He reveals himself and his love and he calls everyone, you here even today, to repent of your sins and believe in this gospel. And in Jesus Christ, the God-man, we have a mediator between man and God. This addresses the, the desire, the heart of heresy that springs from evangelism. You know, you cannot have evangelism without the evangel. Evangel, or euangelion in Greek, means good news. And in English, it's translated gospel. So, really, you could tr uh, translate evangelism or evangelizing as gospelizing. You can't gospelize without the gospel. No one is one to Christ if you preach a different Christ. And in rejecting Christ, we reject the Father who planned to save sinners through Jesus Christ. We reject the very Father who revealed to him. 2 John 9 and 10, look there. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. You don't have the one who revealed him. You don't have the one who planned salvation in the first place. 1 John 2 says this, No one who denies the Son has the Father. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So to reject the Son as God has revealed him in person and in Scripture is to reject God. So there is no evangelism without the evangel. Only aggravated condemnation. That's point number one. Point number two, how is the church to protect its health? How is the church to protect itself? More specifically, how are we to interact with false teachers? John gives two commands there in verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him. This teaching, meaning God the Son come in the flesh, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked work. So again, they were trying to, the false teachers, they were trying to recruit and they were asking hospitality from the Christians. Now, hospitality in their world is very different than we understand it today. You know, today we think about something like uh, having somebody over for dinner. But back then, welcoming someone into your home carried with it all sorts of implications that uh, hospitality today, as we understand it, doesn't necessarily uh, bring with it. So, then, then, welcoming a stranger into your home was to welcome him into your community. And then welcoming him meant also welcoming his community. So taking somebody in for days, which is what they were doing, nobody wanted to stay at an inn because inn, inns were really shady, so were the innkeepers. Um, but taking somebody in for days meant that you were backing the stranger and therefore his community. You were vouching for the stranger and all that he taught and also all that the com his community taught. And so in doing so, you were linking your two communities. So when John says don't receive him or even greet him, he's talking about receiving him in a way that 
affirms the false teacher and the false teaching and their entire community. He says, don't receive him in a way where he and his community thinks we are good. Of course, John doesn't only tell them how they are to steer clear, he also tells them why. Look there in verse 11. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So, it's very clear, if you vouch for them, if you give them hospitality in such a way that affirms them, you are taking part in their wicked works. Now, Christian, we do not want to overreact here and so conclude that Jesus never wants us to interact with Christians or even heretics. That's not what it says right here. So when we read verse 10, we need to consider other things when applying verse 10 to our cultural situation today. So first, just think back to Jesus and his practice, right? He ate with sinners. He went over to sinners' homes. He evangelized them. And he had no problem doing so. Second, we can think of Paul, right? He offers a caveat in 1 Corinthians 5, 9. And the theme of 1 Corinthians 5 is very similar to 2 John. But where John talks about staying away from false teachers, Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 talks about staying away from false livers. Not the organ, but one who practices Christianity. It's one who claims Christianity but doesn't practice it rightly. This is what Paul says. I see the, the bio-nursing doctor folks are laughing at that joke. It says there in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, right? It seems like it's a blanket statement. Do not associate with sexually immoral people. But then Paul makes a caveat. He says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. He says it's an impossibility, and so of course he doesn't mean that. But now I am writing to you to not associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And there he's not thinking about don't put food into your mouth at the same time. He's talking about hospitality that affirms the false liver. For what am I to do with judging outsiders, he says? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So what John addresses and what Paul addresses are actually very similar. John addresses one who claims Christ but who teaches a different Christ. Paul addresses one who claims Christ but lives in ways against a holy Christ. So regardless, both of these people here, both of the disciples, both of the apostles, are, um, they are teaching, look, you guys need to distance yourselves from them in effort to not affirm what they are doing. And so you confuse the line between the world and the church. In both cases, for the Christians, to welcome them or receive them in such a way as to vouch for them is in some ways to unite the two communities, right? To receive those who teach against a true Christ, to receive those who live against a holy Christ, is to link, the, is to link Christ's church with the world. Or you can think about it this way, to link Christ with the Antichrist, which cannot happen. Doing so is a step towards bringing down the church from the inside. And of course, we understand this in our daily lives. A spouse who takes another into covenant marriage, when that other refuses to acknowledge the exclusivity of marriage, will bring down the house. Parents of children who eagerly welcome other children into their house, who are convinced Contrary to the truth that parental authority is meant to be submitted to, 
But instead, you know, you let the children come in who think, oh, forget your parental authority, right? You're going to bring down your own house. Employers who, who knowingly bring in employees who don't believe, do not support, in fact, work against the vision and mission of the company, they will no doubt bring down the company. So Christians who affirm false teachers and their false teaching are creating a house divided which in time falls. So he's saying, look, guard the church, knowing that the church that embraces the world will begin to look like the world and will eventually surrender to the world. So by way of application for us as we guard this church, are you embracing false teachers? Are you embracing false teachers? You know, perhaps one of the most dangerous false doctrines out there is known as the prosperity gospel. Now, there's a spectrum of prosperity preachers from the harder prosperity gospel folks, such as Creflo Dollar, Benny Hinn, to those of the softer prosperity gospel, folks like Joel Osteen and Joyce Meyer. In short, the prosperity gospel is a Christianized form of pagan spirituality. It cannot be clearer than that. Christian, it is a Christianized form of paganized spirituality that basically says you too can be like God, speak things into existence, and live a life of health, wealth, and happiness. And the tagline of the prosperity gospel is, what I confess, I possess. They too come in the name of Jesus. And if you do research, you'll find that much of their teaching does not align with the Bible and even denies the teaching of Jesus Christ and historic Christianity. So T.D. Jakes, Creflo Dollar, Benny Hinn, do you know that they all reject the Trinity, the teaching of the Bible and the teachings of historic Christianity that everyone in the last 2,000 years have, has claimed? Some prosperity preachers go so far as to teach readers to think of themselves as little gods. That's a quotation. They teach that God's plan is that we ought never be sick or poor in this life. And if we are, some go so far as to say, you are in sin if you are poor. And if you want to read more about the prosperity gospel, me, Oscar, Caesar, and Jay have been going through this book, Health, Wealth, and Happiness has the prosperity gospel overshadowed the gospel of Christ. And this is a fantastic book written by the authors, and they have, they have seminary degrees. They also have financial background. One of them was a former vice president of, of, for equity derivatives trading for Solomon Brothers in Germany. I mean, these people are solid, so they're trying to help people with their money, and they go to the Word of God and they say, okay, what is real and what is not real? And they help us understand the origins of the prosperity gospel. And the book shows with overwhelming evidence that the prosperity gospel has its roots in a decidedly non-Christian and pagan teaching called the New Thought Movement that saw its debut in the U.S. in the 19th century. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read some of the, new, some of the teachings of the New Thought Movement and then I'm going to read some of the prosperity gospel, and you'll see how much they align with one another. A Boston New Thought group put their purpose statement this way. To promote a true philosophy and way of life and happiness, to show that through right thinking, one's loftiest ideals may be brought into present realization, and to advance intelligent and systematic treatment of disease by spiritual and mental methods. 
decidedly non-Christian, is pagan. One New Thought teacher says this, You are a mind with a body. Because you are a mind, you possess mystical powers. Power unknown and power known that can bring you, number one, physical, mental, and moral health, happiness, and wealth. Number two, success in your chosen field and endeavor. And even, number three, a means to affect, use, control, and harmonize with powers known and unknown. So you see that there. What they're trying to do is trying to get us to tap into the spiritual forces of the universe to bring about what our loftiest ideals are. Another author says this, send out your thought. Thought is a force and it has occult power of unknown proportions. When rightly used and wisely directed, send out your thought that the right situation or the right work will come to you at the right time, in the right way, and that you will recognize it when it comes. This new thought thinking, new thought movement teaches the law of attraction. And we need to tap into the vibrations and the forces of the universal mind, which is in all substance. And this omnipotent, capital O, will assist you in bringing into operation the law of attraction, which makes for success and brings about conditions of power and affluence in direct proportion with the character of your affirmation. That sounds a lot like God is in everything, in all of us, even in the stuff of the world, and we just need to tap into it. The prosperity gospel, friends, has roots in that. And all they're doing is twisting Christian scripture to validate their claims. Listen to what prosperity preachers say. A man named Charles Cab says, The creative ability of man comes through his spirit. He speaks spirit words that work in the world of the spirit. They will dominate the physical world. Creflo Dollar says, We can use spiritual substance to change physical substance. As believers, we have authority over this physical world. Joel Osteen says, in a slightly different way, Our words have tremendous power, and whether we want to or not, we will give life to what we are saying, either good or bad. He goes on, Friend, there is a miracle in your mouth. If you want to change the world, start by changing your words. If you want to change the world, start by changing your words. If you learn how to speak the right words and keep the right attitude, God will in turn, or God will turn that situation around. Use words to change your situation because with our words, we can prophesy our own future. Friends, there are many dangers of the prosperity gospel. Number one, it dethrones God. Number one, it dethrones God. God is not someone to obey, they say, or submit to and worship. Instead, it seems God is someone we become. Who is it, right? I mean, just listen to all of that. And who is it that when he speaks, speaks things into existence? Who is it that has all knowledge to prophesy of the future? It is only God. Prosperity teaches you how to set yourself up as if you were God. Number two, danger of prosperity gospel devalues and decentralizes the cross of Christ. So it pushes the death of Jesus Christ and the, his death on the cross. And they say that it is a place of failure and a place of defeat. So they approach the scripture with their own worldview and they say, surely this doesn't make sense. I get that there is a mighty and that he reigns over everything. But for the great mighty to die a defeat? To lose in failure? 
And so one of the fathers of the prosperity gospel judged the humanity of Christ to be unimportant, just like what we're reading of today in 2 John. How can you reconcile Christ's purpose of dying on the cross with a prosperity gospel where our, the greatest one, the one, the trailblazer, is one who lives in order to die and suffer? You can't, so you change the gospel. Number three, it leads people away. Many young Christians, and even some here today, have been led astray, have sunk into discouragement over their faith, and even come to wonder if they have faith. The natural conclusion of the prosperity gospel's teaching is, if I'm not getting rich and if I am still sick, then surely I must, have, I must not have enough faith, which is, friends, a complete lie from hell. Jesus believed and was crucified. All of the apostles believed, and most of them died. One was exiled. Christians throughout the history of the church have suffered for the faith, and they prove their faith by the grace of God in the midst of their suffering. So my response to the prosperity gospel, don't dare tell us that the Christians throughout the world who love Jesus and who are right now suffering for the faith, who gladly give up whatever money they have and health that they have for the sake of the gospel, don't have enough faith. It is they who have counted the cost to follow Christ. It is they that Christ comes to them in love and says, well done, good and faithful servant. And it is they, according to Revelation, that Jesus Christ avenges their blood because their blood cries out to Jesus Christ. Prosperity gospel makes light of suffering, makes light of true faith, makes light of many Christians' experience throughout the history of the church. Friends, we need to be discerning. We need to be discerning in how we pursue Jesus, which means we need to be, pers- uh, we need to be discerning in what we read and in what we watch. I'm sure you've heard it said that the best way to detect the counterfeit is to study the original. You know, you don't have to be an expert in the prosperity gospel to see the strangeness of it. When I read the Bible... God says He saves us from sin. He also promises that this world will be remade and that indeed we are seated with Jesus Christ, the riches that are in Him. But we don't see that here in this life. We don't escape suffering here in this life. We will in the future life. I read the Bible and I say that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the purpose for why He came. The prosperity gospel neglects this plan of salvation and the cross and frankly takes the God of the Bible and reinvents him in a spirit of innovation. Talks about a whole lot of suffering in the world when I read the Bible, but in the Bible, while joy is promised, satisfaction in Christ is promised, security is promised, a pain-free life now is never promised. So as you seek to love Christ, let me encourage you, as I did last week, let me expand on that. Throw your weight behind seeking to know God and to build up your knowledge of God. So let me encourage you, read your Bibles. Read your Bibles. Make time in the morning to set a, to, uh, where you're setting, it, setting aside time and diving into the Word of God so that you might know God Himself. Oscar's been an encouragement here. Oscar and Caesar and others that they're reaching out to get up early in the morning, around 5 a.m., and eventually they are reading the Bible together, on their cell phones, together. You know, for us as the church, we have this equip class that takes place before this service, takes place right over there, 
And it's all on right now how to study the Bible. It's, and hopefully we're giving you tools to understand it so that you can understand God and His Word more. Let me encourage you guys to read other books. Let me encourage you to throw your weight into studying Christian theology for your benefit, but also for the benefit of your neighbor here, for your brothers and sisters. So if you buy the right books, you're going to get great summaries and explanations about how people throughout Christian history have understood this Bible. And here we can help understand all sorts of things, like uh, what does the Bible have to say about the Trinity? What does the Bible have to say about who Jesus is, about the cross? What does the Bible have to say about angels and demons? What does the Bible have to say about the church? And we can just go on and on and on. And what they do is they seek to gather material. If, if it's a good book, they seek to gather material on the Bible and present a cogent understanding of the Bible's doctrines. If you're taking notes and you want to get one under, let's say, 100 pages, a good one is uh, Wayne Grudem's Basic Christian Beliefs. Basic Christian Beliefs, a good, bu- a good book. Again, if you have friends who, are, who uh, have come, are coming out of the Health, Wealth, and Prosperity Gospel, this book is excellent. Health, Wealth, and Happiness by Jones and Woodbridge. But from learning what the Bible says and how Christians have understood things from centuries will help us understand the counterfeits. You know, also, if you guys are reading stuff or watching things and you want to know, is this, should I spend time reading this stuff? You know, ask me. A uh, decent website as well that you can go to. They haven't done anything in the last year or so, but they have good reviews on a whole lot of stuff. Is discerningreader.org. Discerningreader.org. <clears throat> so let me encourage you to throw your weight into these things. Remember here, John is trying to teach the church how to love wisely with great discernment for the church's protection, really for the glory of God and the furtherance of the gospel. So let me encourage you to throw your weight into that. That's what you're throwing your weight into, not just reading and getting through books. It's so that God's glory might be made known and the gospel made known to those who are, who are all around us. You do not want to be encouraging false teachers or supporting their ministries if they are teaching a false gospel. We don't ever want to link the church with the world because if we do, the church will surrender to the gospel and lose all relevance as it loses the gospel. And friends, if you see somebody reading something that's not helpful or listening to something that doesn't align with health, uh, doesn't align with Scripture, let them know. This is exactly what John wants to do. Look there in verse 12. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy in Christ, the implication, may be complete. And that's what he's doing in these very letters. He's saying, watch out. Let me try and help you. Friends, we all are as fellow church members. This is what we're called to do. Just as John is wanting to go and strengthen their faith, so we too, as members of the same church, ought to take action to protect and strengthen the faith of those here in this place. We want to help others, as this letter talks about a lot. Abide in the teachings of Jesus Christ and in Christ. Reading the Word with your with church members and reading other books that help you understand the Word will help you do that. So to conclude this sermon and really the whole series in Second John, John's letter here calls the church to love, but to love wisely. Practically, this means loving the things that Jesus loves and guarding the things that Christ has revealed. 
and we so prevent the truth into spinning into error. John even calls us to give no affirmation to false teachers and their false teaching, as is very evident in the letter. So, if we ever come across something similar, false teaching, what should our response be? As mentioned before, that slogan, keep calm and carry on, continue to abide in Christ Jesus, who has come in the flesh. Let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, Lord, we thank You that You have given the church apostles who laid the foundation as they went about preaching the gospel. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You that we are not lost to discover for ourselves or to create Your own teaching or teaching that supposedly comes from You. But Lord, we can go to the Word knowing that in it we have a treasure of divine truth. Father, we pray that by Your Spirit You would help protect these truths, even here in this place. Lord, give us discernment so that we might add it to our love. We pray, Lord, that by your Spirit you would help us love rightly, and that we would have a a holy love, a purifying love, that loves holy things just as you love. Father, we ask that the gospel of Jesus Christ might always be proclaimed here in this pulpit for as long as you allow this place and this church to gather. In your name we pray. Amen.